At the heart of Buddhist meditation practice is the spirit of investigation. So this is what I would like to talk about tonight, is investigation. Investigation is an openness of mind. It's an exploratory state of mind, where we're not coming to conclusions about how things are, but we're interested in looking for ourselves. It's a quality of heart or factor of mind that happens to be quite strong in children, as any of those of us who have contact with children know. I remember being in a museum some years ago, and um, in this museum there was one step. It was a pretty big room, and there was just one step right in the middle of the museum. And I was, um, I was watching everyone just walk around looking at the pictures, and the pictures were okay. But then I, I noticed that there was this little tiny girl that was in the middle of the room playing on the step. And actually watching her was much, much more interesting than the pictures because she was so fascinated by this step. It was really just a step. It wasn't a big deal. You know, it wasn't ice cream. It wasn't a balloon. It was just a step. And yet she jumped on it. She jumped down off of it. She walked up as if it was a mountain. She, um, you know, got down and licked it, started to eat it. I mean, everything you could do with just a step this little girl did. It didn't matter that that it was a step. And it was because she didn't have this idea of S-T-E-P, you know, and that's not much of anything, and of course I should be looking at the pictures. She was interested, involved in her life, um, curious, curious. It's really a, a tendency to be curious, opening up a curiosity. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, who's a Thai forest teacher, says that um, this quality is a quality of affectionate curiosity. And I like that because when we think curiosity, sometimes it's a little cool, it's a little detached, it's a little bit, you know, removed. Whereas if you bring the affection in there, there's a, you know, there's a a love in it. Um, This little girl was not just curious, she was to lick it, to eat it. She obviously was, um, you know, was endearing to her in some way. She was taken by it. She was taken by it. Yeah. So this sense of um, loving interest or affectionate curiosity is what we encourage in ourselves in the practice. It's something we really have to encourage because we're so apt to follow our habits. This is our instinct, and some of our habits may be quite comfortable. So it really is a quality of heart that we need to remember, we need to reflect on, we need to encourage in our life. We need to encourage its cultivation in our life. And we need to apply it as much as we can from moment to moment. It's a silent, concentrated, inner kind of listening. It's not analyzing. It's not trying to figure anything out. It's not trying to fix anything. It's allowing inner stillness that can be available to us in each moment. Inner stillness, inner silence to be present so that there is a depth of listening, so that, again, we don't just assume that things are a certain way, but we're willing to find out for ourselves how things actually are. It's not letting the endless circle of thought have center stage in our life. 
you know, nothing wrong with thought. And thought, of course, can be used in a really skillful way. But when we think life is only thought, when we believe each thought that occurs, when we allow thought to be the center of our life, we miss deeper dimensions of life. And we're always going around in the old. We're always going around in the known. Investigation has to do with breaking out of the known, breaking out of the known and looking in a fresh, open way at how things are. So it's kind of breaking out of that circle of endless thinking where we know the beginning of the story, we know the middle of the story, we know the end of the story, and we know the beginning, the middle, and the end a million times over. So it's the willingness to put it down, to put it aside, and allow for investigation instead. It's observation without following thinking. You know, it's observing what's happening without following the habits or without following the patterns or without following the feelings or the thoughts that are occurring. It's allowing ourselves to be present and to observe from moment to moment how life is, to see into deeper dimensions of life by being present and awake and alert. It's bringing a loving attention into each moment without dwelling. A loving attention meaning knowing from moment to moment what is happening without making a home in each moment, without making a home in phenomena, without making a home in that which changes. Instead, we're making a home in attentiveness. We're making a home in openness. We're making a home in awareness. This is called satipanya. Sati meaning mindfulness and panya meaning wisdom. So it's bringing mindfulness and wisdom together. Mindfulness on its own, you know, is a great quality. It's a wonderful quality. We talk about it all the time, obviously. (laughs) So I'm not about to put down mindfulness. Mindfulness is the best thing. It's great. And it's not enough on its own. It's just not enough. Because mindfulness means connection. And wisdom means we're learning from the connection. You know, so it's not just being more efficient in life or, you know, this or that kind of a very um, mechanical sense of mindfulness. It's not just connection. It's connection, and then it's being open to learning what happens in connection. What is a thought? What is a feeling? What is a sound? What is a problem? What is a struggle? I mean, really open to learning from the connection. So there's the, the noticing what's happening, And then it's allowing ourselves to learn or to be taught by that which is happening. And that, of course, you know, has a variety of implications, one of which is we don't have to continue to repeat mistakes because we can learn from our experiences. So satipanya, mindfulness and understanding or connection and wisdom, these are brought together and this allows for a real investigation. In practice, we're allowing the facts to speak for themselves. We're trying not to interfere quite so much, not to impose our opinions or agendas or ideas on the facts, 
And we're seeing if we can allow um, the world to speak to us. Instead of speaking so much to the world, we're allowing the world to speak to us. And by the world, I mean we're allowing sounds to speak to us, we're allowing our hearts to speak to us, we're allowing mental states to speak to us, we're allowing the birds to speak to us. We're, we're allowing ourselves to hear ourselves as well. No? We're allowing ourselves to hear what is actually going on from moment to moment. So it doesn't have to do with introspection. It doesn't have to do with uh, kind of being wrapped up inside of oneself, um, inwardly arguing um, with ourselves, making cases for or against whatever it is that's happening. In other words, justifying ourselves in some way or accusing ourselves as well. In meditation, we're simply allowing things to be and we're observing and open to learning, open to being taught. So it's a growing sense of understanding. It's a sensing of the common nature of all phenomena. It's sensing what is actually happening. We become in this area of investigation, we become more aware of appearances and how easy it is to be swayed by appearances when we're not very conscious or mindful. We might notice just in a given day or in a given hour or certainly in a given lifetime, we might notice that when there is a attractive appearance, and of course this is a personal thing, so I don't mean we all have the same standards of what is attractive or what, what looks good to us, but when there is some kind of an appearance, like a you know, good-looking piece of food or you know, whatever it might be, when it, when it looks attractive, we tend to move towards it. I mean, that we're naturally drawn in by that which appears to be attractive. Of course, we know, you know if we are drawn in overly and, and do something like eat too much of something like ice cream, then it'll turn on us. You know? So that attractive appearance... Um, is an attractive appearance. So that, that sense of being drawn in um, or compelled by something without us having much choice about it is an arena for investigation. We also might notice that when something looks unattractive or, um, you know, and again, this is a personal sense of what is unattractive, that we're quite naturally, we might find ourselves moving away from it or repelled by it in some way. And of course, we may, at times in our life, notice that that which looked unattractive actually has some stuff, substance to it. You know, is is not something that we really um, want to push away. We may also be afraid of unattractive appearances in whatever form they arise in. So we might look at that as well when there's the unattractive appearance of um, despair in us, or of anger, or fury in us. We might be afraid, yeah? whereas if we can open and be mindful and investigate and learn from the anger, learn from the fury, learn from the despair, it turns into a totally different thing. Yeah? We see that it's not something to be afraid of. But initially, of course, you know, there's this sense of fear. So we need to look at appearances. We also may notice that when there's kind of an ordinary appearance to something, that we sort of space out or we find ourselves indifferent. Something like just picking up a glass of water, such an ordinary thing in life. And yet if we're awake and we're mindful and we don't make it into something 
mundane. In other words, if we can make it into something sacred, which it, it is because it's just a nom- another moment of life, then anything is possible. In lifting that glass to our mouth, uh, there's many, many different mind moments involved in lifting a glass up to the mouth. And if we're aware, if we're mindful during all of them, life can be transformed. Yeah? So just to look, you know, in our, our looking at investigation, just to look at these tendencies and to maybe slow down, to notice if appearances really um, have substance to them and if there's something we can learn. Investigation is really the opposite of assuming something or of assumptions. I want to read something by someone named Samuel Goldman, who happens to have been age 92 when he said this. I have a friend, a woman I already know many years. One day she is mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That's how it should be. You cannot tell someone, I know you. People jump around. They are like a ball, rubbery. They bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Rubbery, it must jump. So, what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in, make a little hole. It goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This, likewise, you could do concerning yourself. (laughs) All this I didn't read in any book. It is my own invention. (laughs) This is truly the spirit of investigation. No, this, is, this is really what is meant by investigation. And applying it in relationship as well. Applying it in relationship to oneself, applying it in relationship to others. Noticing the boxes that we put ourselves in. I am this, I am that. And then because of the boxes that we put ourselves in, noticing the boxes that we put other people in. You are like this, you are like that. And then of course we find ourselves disappointed when they jump or when they move. Or we find ourselves just not not aware of the joy that is possible in relationship because we're expecting the worst, you know, because we're we're putting someone in a bad box. And so then maybe we're not prepared when they jump out of it and things are quite (laughs) quite delightful. Mm. So looking at our attitudes and our preconceptions, in thinking that we know ourselves or that we know others in this very tight box-like way, we find ourselves actually not in a real relationship anymore. Sort of like we're in pseudo-relationships. You know, they're not real, they're somewhat fake. We're really in relationship with an idea. We're in relationship with a concept that we've made up that has nothing to do with reality. So investigation involves looking at our attitudes. It involves looking at our preconceptions. It involves being in a real relationship with life, which does involve vulnerability, which does involve the willingness to not know all the time. There are different areas that we can investigate. We can investigate the body, 
we can notice when we look at the body, when we look at our bodies or when we look at other people's bodies. We can be aware that bodies are born and bodies live, bodies grow old and bodies die. And we can notice our relationship to relating to our body in an extremely personal way that, you know, maybe people we don't know should be born and grow old and die, but certainly not people we love and certainly not ourselves. You know, so just kind of looking at our relationship to this kind of funny, mysterious fact of having a body, of being in a body, and recognizing how we're relating to it. Being aware of sound, when sounds occur, can we listen fully to whatever sound is occurring? Noticing that sound is sound, noticing that hearing is hearing. Can we observe the mind when a sound occurs? Can we notice when a particular sound is occurring, how the mind sometimes makes up a story about it, creates a story about it? We hear someone cough in the meditation room and we may immediately think, oh, they're really sick. What can I do? Got to do this, got to do that. Maybe I'll get sick too, got to go home. You know, the mi- <laughs> easy excuse. <laughs> the mind Im- sometimes immediately makes up a, a, a story about a sound. It is so interesting when, when we begin this work and continue with this work to notice how quick the stories are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, we don't really, we think that they're true, so we don't really question them. And then we begin to be a little suspicious. And then they happen super quick. And it's not as if they stop happening, but we're aware that they're not real. We're aware that we're controlling it, that we've made it up, and that in actuality, we have no idea what is happening. We can also notice with um, sounds that we don't like, we can be aware of whether we're disturbed by those sounds or not, whether we need for them to go away in order for there to be peace, in order for there to be ease. We can be aware of thought. We can be aware of thought. And we really do need to be aware at various points in our practice of really two dimensions of thought. The first one has to do with getting to know what we're thinking. we We can't just transcend thinking without getting to know what the contents are first. We need to know, are there a lot of thoughts of of, um, resentment? Are there a lot of thoughts of jealousy? Are there a lot of thoughts of this, a lot of thoughts of that? Getting to know what our thoughts are when we get insulted in some way. Getting to know what happens when something is off. Getting to know how we react and what the thoughts are are part of that reaction. So really getting to know what our thoughts are is really important. This is where the breath comes in, because in being able to develop a growing steadiness with the breath, we're able to transfer that steadiness with the breath into being aware of thoughts without getting as lost in them, so that we can actually see the contents without being as overwhelmed or as compelled to follow thought. So this is one area. The other area, which is the you could say the deeper area, the meditative area as well, has to do with noticing what a thought is. Noticing thoughts arising, existing, passing away. Noticing the temporary condition of thought, that that's what a thought is. Noticing that a thought on some level is an energetic current. Getting in touch, sensing um, the energetic current nature of thinking. 
Now, at times one can feel that thoughts are sensations, that there's a sensation in a thought. And whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, doesn't matter. It's a sensation that one is not swayed by. One can be aware of thought as thought, not as less, not as more, but as thought just in the same way as we're listening to a sound. Same thing as the chirp of a bird or whatever it might be. Birds chirping, thoughts thinking, you know, just, just, just that. We can also be aware of mental states. We can be aware of the various mental states that occur from moment to moment. We can begin to investigate our anger. We can begin to investigate fear when it arises. In my story about rats the other day, I don't think that just because I was experiencing enormous dharma joy that I also didn't experience fear of the rats. And of course, to begin with, I tried to deal with it in quite a practical way. I had heard that there were kind of rat, not traps, but contraptions that you could put on your stairs so that the rats couldn't get up them, you know, they'd slide down. And so I started trying to explore in the monastery where I could get one, but I found out that I was on the floor, on the ground floor. So <laughs> there was, you know, they couldn't go up. They, they would just run back in. So then I decided I would try to sleep for one night downstairs. And this, there was another floor. <laughs> I can't say bed, but there was another floor to be slept on downstairs in this place. And so I thought, well, I'll try that because it looks somewhat closed in. And then, you know, I had a really peaceful night, which was really nice, but then I woke up in the morning and rat droppings close by. So I realized that that wasn't really going to work either. But it was, it was nice to have a good night's sleep anyway. <laughs> and then I heard that I could um, scare them away. So I would be lying there, you know, pitch black, and have my little unreliable flashlight and I'd start hearing them, and always they didn't come out until I was lying down and quiet. You know, they never came out when I was sitting. They only came out when I was, when I was lying down ready to go to sleep. So I would hear the gnawing and the sound and everything, and I would get up, jump up, try to make a lot of noise, grab a broom and, like, you know, <laughs> like hit the ceiling while I was yelling. You know, like, yee-haw, yee-haw, that kind of thing. <laughs> Nobody mentioned anything to me. I mean, I was a little concerned about the other women in the camp, but um, nobody said anything to me, so I was thinking maybe they, you know, were doing that too. <laughs> but I would jump up and do it and then try to lie down, oh, da-da-da-da-da, you know, jump up again and do it, because whenever I did it, they would get quiet. I mean, it was kind of a compelling thing to do, because they actually would get quiet. But the moment I lay down again, two seconds later, I would hear the gnawing once again. So I realized I was going to have to deal with this in a different way. I was probably going to have to investigate. (laughs) So I began to be aware of the sound, you know, scratch, scratch, scratch. Be aware of the immediate image, which was of teeth. Right after I (laughs) heard the sound, I'd get teeth, and then I'd get neck, you know, and then I'd get horror. So I, I had this whole kind of train of things occurring. And then, just by having to be with it, you know, I really didn't have a choice, so having to be with it, a couple of things started to 
to, to happen. I noticed that I was relating to the rats as if they were kind of personally out to get me. You know, and I realized that they, they were just living their rat-like nature. And if I was in the way, I was in the way, but it wasn't anything personal at all. So that was very helpful. I also, <laughs> not totally helpful, but a little helpful. And I also realized that um, if they did get in, which, you know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I wasn't any, hearing any stories about them actually getting in. Although Michael, who was there with me, was in another kuti in the men's section. And he had the experience every night at about 6 o'clock in the evening, a rat would come by him, just kind of sauntering by, hi, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then that rat would leave. <laughs> because cause his situation was a little bit more open than mine. But so that was the only situation that I'd heard of where, you know, the rats had actually gone in. And so I realized that I would be able to deal with it if it happened. I mean, I would have to deal with it. Yeah? It would probably come together. The rat would drop down. I would open the door, you know, escort the rat out. Something would happen. That, in, in other words, in some way I just had to surrender because things are as they are. You know, I had the choice. I could leave. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to stay and be panicked and tortured the whole time and not get any sleep. So what were my options? My option was to surrender. And the investigation, you know, trying to see it from a number of different angles, which sometimes is what investigation is, not seeing it from one angle, but trying to see it from a number of different angles, allowed for there to be some degree of surrender. Also, um, there's another area of investigation, which I find is very, very interesting. And this area has to do with looking at what maybe could be called one's personal koan in life, or personal koans. And what I mean by the word koan in this, in this context is kind of mystery. What, what are one's meditative questions, those questions that come up over and over again? The kind of thing that you ask in interviews over and over again. The kind of thing where you ask one teacher and then, you know, you're not satisfied. You ask another teacher the same exact question. Or maybe you ask it for 10 years. Maybe you ask the same teacher the same question for 10 years. Or you ask a variety of teachers, anybody you can get a hold of, um, the, a different question in a different way in, for 10 years. But it's something that happens in a repetitive way. And it's very, very interesting. I mean, I noticed it in interviews working with people over the years that oftentimes the same thing comes up. And at a certain point, I am aware, ah, this is it. You know, this is the personal koan. This is, and it's a wonderful discovery because there's so much that can happen when one really recognizes that one's questions in life can be worked with. That our assumptions about how things are can be turned around and asked in the form of, the quest of a question. And whenever we're willing to do that, to turn something around and ask it in the form of a question, we do invite a sense of fresh air. We do invite the possibility of change, the possibility of seeing things in a totally different way. <clears throat> Our questions, of course, change. Our questions change over a lifetime. We might have the same question for five years. We might have the same question for 20 years. 
Um, and we can watch our questions change. We might notice that something that we were quite um, struggling with or quite interested in um, has kind of just disappeared or eased away and we haven't even seen it going. You know, we just recognize, oh, it's not a question anymore. Yeah. Maybe we don't, we can't even explain it to anyone. We can't even verbalize it. And yet there's just a sense of ease. There's a sense of, of something having dissolved, not even knowing what that contraction was. But we find ourselves just a little bit easier in life, a little bit easier within ourselves. People work with a variety of different questions. Um, someone I knew uh, worked with this very fundamental question of what is true integration? You know, which is a really, really good question. And you can answer that in a superficial way, and you can try it out in a variety of different ways. But to hold what is true integration as a question for oneself is very, very powerful. It's very, very helpful. Because you're trying to apply this question. If you're investigating it, you're trying to notice what is true integration. So you're not accepting any easy answers. You're attempting to take the question up and to look at it in a bit of a deeper, a deeper way. Maybe the question of anger, you know, recognizing that there's a lot of anger. And maybe you know why. You know, maybe there are very important reasons why there is so much anger. And at the same time, maybe those reasons why are not happening anymore. And yet, one walks into a room and feels anger. One's talking to one's best friend and feels anger. Someone's being kind to you and you feel anger. Yeah? I mean, in other words, it's, it's an anger that doesn't quite make sense. And so what is it? You know, to look at it, to look at what's around it, to look at the whole situation, not assuming I'm an angry person, not assuming it's going to stay this way, this is my character, you know, but questioning, really seeing if one can hold it as a question in life. Another question could be, is it possible to feel happy when other people are not? You know, is it possible, is it okay to feel happy? when you know that other people are suffering. And to investigate this question, to look at it if it happens to be a real question for you. Can I be happy without feeling guilty? Another question for some people is, why be here when I can be there? And, you know, you probably already get that one, but <laughs> why be present when I could be fantasizing? when there's something difficult happening in the present moment. Why be here? Why be around? What's the value in being present when I can just um, space out or think about this or think about that? Now, you know, there's a lot of different answers to that. There are really inspiring answers, but it's a real question. And so one would hesitate to answer it. It's a question that one has to find out for oneself. Yeah? One has to discover for oneself because this is how the struggle begins to ease and creativity begins. In working with someone many years ago who was quite disabled and was experiencing the injustice of the world because of being disabled, oftentimes this world is quite cruel to people that are disabled, Her, th his question for a really long time was, um, is it possible to be equanimous in an unjust world or is equanimity passivity? In other words, am I letting go of what I need to do to create change for myself and others? Um, what is the difference between equanimity and passivity or equanimity and indifference? And again, this is a real question. This is a powerful question in life to hold. 
So when we look at our, our kind of issues in life or our struggles in life or our situation in life, my question would be, is it possible to turn it around? Is it possible to ask it in the form of a question? Because it's already shaken up a little bit if one is aware enough to be able to do that. Investigation turns every situation around. Instead of something that has to be controlled or has to be fixed or something that we need to be afraid of, there is the willingness to connect and to explore. And there is very much with investigation the willingness to experiment, the willingness to try something new, the willingness to bring awareness into an area of our life where that there has not been much light. You know, the willingness to be present in the midst of pain, the willingness to be present in the, myth, in the midst of ecstasy, the willingness to be with our life and to look in as open a way as we can. Patience is really essential, really important when we're working with life questions or with personal koans. We need to hold our life questions quite gently over the years, not hurrying them along, but being quite tender, quite gentle in our explorations. Because all of the questions that I just brought up, all of them are quite tender questions. Yeah, they, they don't deserve um, any level of violence. They don't deserve any level of anybody telling us what to do. They really deserve our full attention because of their enormous impact on a life. You're probably familiar with this very beautiful thing that Rilke said. I would like to beg you to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Mm. And this is the place of patience. As I said before, if we're willing to hold our questions, if we're willing to investigate without hurrying, oftentimes we just find that something has changed or else the question has kind of morphed into something else. You know, it's changed into something else. Many years ago, I was having the question of, I turned it into the question of, can I survive my mother's death? My mother's death was a very big question for me, partly because her she's almost 80. I have to say that right away. But this was when she was much younger. There has always been a, a sense of fragility about her health. And also, you know, when we were growing up, anytime we misbehaved, which was very frequently, there was this kind of thread of, you know, losing her if we, if we were bad, which my sisters and I were, were quite, quite adept at. So I had this, this sense, and there's a very strong, although of course, you know, there's some, there has been some complexity in it, there's this very strong psychic love bond between us. So there's just this question of, is it possible? And of course, you know, looking around, many people have lost their mothers and have survived, and you know, what a question to have. And yet, without self-judgment, without thinking of it as not a good question, because all of our questions are good questions, just beginning to take it up, to examine the grief, the grief before she was even gone, you know, the feeling that was there when she's still in my life. Yeah. 
And at, at a certain point, actually when I was in Thailand 10 years earlier than this time I was telling you about, I talked to one of my teachers there about this, and he suggested that I take up this question as what is called a kamatana, or meditative subject. You know, because everybody has their own meditative subject, and that's what these questions may be, these personal koans may be one's meditative question. What it means to have a kamatana means that you're holding a question in a very precious, careful way. You're treating it like a precious jewel with the recognition that freedom is on the other side, or that freedom is in the midst of the question itself. You know, and if there can be patience and investigation and care given to the question, whenever it arises, that it will actually help you along the path. You know, and as I said, oftentimes these questions morph to some degree. So a certain retreat, some, some little bit of time after that time in Thailand, the first time around, um, sitting and just experiencing the, the sense that something was wrong with my mother and hearing about it from family members and thinking I was going to have to leave the retreat and go see her and wanting to go see her. Um, but before I, I knew whether I had to leave again, just this enormous, enormous grief occurring. And staying with it, being aware, um, you know, bringing whatever degree of tender attentiveness I was able to bring to it. And at some point, there was some kind of a shift. I can't explain it. Something, sometimes these things are quite unexplainable. Um, there was a sense of integrating it into my body or kind of taking my mother in or something along those lines. Again, it's, it's always a mysterious process. But something happened. And then the question kind of morphed into, what is death? You know, not what is my mother's death and the personal connection, which of course is, is important too, but it, it morphed into something much bigger. And it actually gave me a lot of inspiration for practice because you know, from a Buddhist point of view, our parents have died over and over and over and over again. Yeah. So if this is going to happen over and over again, yeah, you got to wake up. One has to wake up. You know. So how about this lifetime waking up yeah, instead of going through this again and again and again? So it actually became great fuel for practice. It actually enlivened um, my practice. And then, of course, it morphing into these bigger questions of, of what is death? Is death real? Um, what is deathlessness? Um, questions such as these to investigate, um, all of it became quite rich. So this is, you know, just an example of the different ways that we hold our questions, and I know you all know what I mean. There are different ways to investigate the areas that I've spoken about, and um, there's actually millions of them, so I can't really go into all of them in this talk. But just to touch on a couple or a few, one is to be very aware of our habitual reactions. Being aware of whether our habitual reaction in relationship to a particular kind of phenomena is to push it away. To be aware of our habitual reaction is to pretend that something isn't even happening or to minimize it in some way or to move away from it and to move immediately into fantasy. To notice if our reaction, our habitual reaction, is to exaggerate it, to dwell in it, to elaborate on it, to make it into some kind of a drama. To see if our habitual reaction is to worry, you know, to, to immediately move into worry and to try to figure out why it's happening. 
and to worry about why it's happening, to assess ourselves in light of it happening in a negative way, usually. To break down, particularly when talking about mental states or emotional states, to break it down, to ask, why am I calling it this? Sometimes we get the bare whiff of something. You know, we feel the bare whiff of something familiar. And then we immediately say, it's this or it's that. It's grief, it's depression, it's anger, it's this. And it's because, you know, it's something familiar to us. But when we immediately put that label on top, we do stop investigation. There is a sense of solidification, and there is a stopping of fresh air. There's a stopping of investigation. So we want to ask ourselves, how do I know it's this? You know, why am I calling it um, depression? Why am I calling it grief? Why am I calling it anger? And then to look inside, to notice what is happening in the body, to be aware of the reactivity in the body, to be aware of the heart beating, to be aware of the stomach, to be aware of anything happening in the chest area, to be aware of how the face is. Sometimes when, when we're caught in something, our face is scrunched up in a particular habitual way, and we don't even know it. We're not even aware of it. So to be aware of the face, to be aware of any degree of contraction or scrunching up in the area of the face. So to find it in the body, I mean, this is, this is just enormously valuable in terms of any degree of investigation, is to investigate what's happening in the body, to keep it in the body, you know, because then we're less apt to fall into our habits of reactivity, of mental reactivity, if we can keep it in the body. And it's a great place for exploration. We don't often give it enough value because we overvalue the life of thought, the life of the mind. But to feel it in the body, we'll notice all sorts of things happening if we can stay sensitive and um, see the importance of investigation of the body. We can, of course, be aware of the thoughts. We can, of course, be aware of how one is re reacting in any given situation. Also, perhaps, to um, when working with, some, with something, when, when um, investigating something, to look at how you might be with something else, you know, something easier to be with or something more neutral to be with, in investigating a mental state or a difficult mental state, to look at how you are with the breath, you know, to notice whether a sound ripples you in the same way, and then to use your strength, to use the wisdom of equanimity in how you are with something else, applying it to whatever it is that seems that one seems to be very reactive to. So noticing this. Another way might be to ask the question, how would I respond if this were happening to someone else? You know, or how would I respond if this were happening to someone that I really love? It might be, one might find that there's a lot more compassion in working with someone that one loves or even someone that one doesn't know than in working with oneself. You know, so to see if that is true, to take that compassion and then to apply it to one's own situation. <clears throat> Experiencing whatever it is in the present moment, really recognizing how much the mind loves to dwell on the past and loves to dwell on the future. And just recognizing this is invaluable because then we can, we can find out, we can investigate whether we indeed are present, we indeed are sensitive and aware of whatever it is that's happening in the here and now. 
we can investigate in the light of the Dharma. We can investigate in the light of um, whether things truly are impermanent or not, really are, whether the rumors really are true, whether everything is subject to change, but to find out for ourselves, not to just accept that just because we've read about it or heard about it, but to really explore, to investigate this, particularly when we're in a crunch, but any time, to investigate, to remember impermanence, to remember flow. You know, investigation of something is particularly mental states, but whatever it might be is really interesting because you can start to see flow. You can start, and if you can stay in the present moment, we can start to see just kind of the vibration of whatever it is that's happening. There's a a sense of vibration, a sense of things being not as substantial or as solid or as tightly defined as we originally thought they were or as they appear to be. And so there's a way we can get into it or under it or around it and hold it in a radically different way than simply through the solidity of this is what it is and this is how things are instead of that being able to really investigate, which does only require remembering. We all can investigate if we can remember to do so. We have hearts and minds that are capable as human beings. We have the capacity to observe. We have the capacity to investigate. And we just need to remember this whenever we get stuck or whenever we find ourselves lost in habit, we can touch that capacity to be awake, that capacity to explore, that capacity to discover things in a very, very different way. We can observe fear. We can observe difficulties. We can observe sounds. We can observe thoughts. We can observe the ordinary. It is possible to observe and to learn from our observation. When we're upset about something, we can habitually react, and we do habitually react. And then when we're over the reaction, perhaps we can investigate. With sustained attention, maybe we can see things a little bit more clearly as they are, as temporary conditions arising, existing, and passing away. Everything being subject to arising, existing, and passing away. In freeing ourselves from our identification with phenomena, our identification with thought, our identification with sensations, with feelings, with sounds, we naturally touch our true nature. There's space in which we can touch things as they are. We can touch the luminous, bright, clear nature of the heart. If we don't investigate, we think things are a certain way. When we do investigate, when we do contemplate, when we do observe, we touch that which is actually true, not illusion, not delusion, not how we think things are, not how things appear to be, but we touch ourselves. We touch that which is actually true. We see very clearly that a thought is a thought. We see that a sensation is a sensation, that a sound is a sound and we find freedom. May we have ease of mind. May we have comfort of heart. May we be free from all forms of suffering. Let's just sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.